So yeah, it's been a while. I remember you came out to Laurier a couple of years ago. Like you had a little convention. I don't know what exactly the talk was about. I can't remember anymore, but I don't remember what ended up happening. I think I ended up having an exam or some sort of assignment that we couldn't end up linking up and whatnot. But yeah. Yeah, I came down for a talk. I think this was like 2018. And mm -hmm. um, I had another one virtually at Laurier in September for first years. So yeah, man, I've been I've been doing a lot. I've been doing a lot of the motivational yeah. speaking and I'm doing a lot of writing. Obviously, you know, I'm working on a book right now, which is going to be um, a really, really cool experience, man. I never thought I'd ever end up writing a book, but you know, it's it's funny how how God makes these things sort of work out. And it's just it's been it's been a journey. There's been a lot of challenges in my journey, obviously, as you can imagine, um, you know, giving talks and stuff in the middle of COVID-19 when that hit. That was a massive um, hit for me, especially because I was on a really, really high wave. And, you know, we can jump into that after. But it's been challenging, bro. It's been it's been a crazy past year, to say the least, bro. To say the least. And it's crazy, like, even now, like, at this point, realizing now that it's been a year, it's just insanity to me. Because it feels like I've lived a few lifetimes, honestly, within this past year. Like, there's been so many different, like, chapters to my life that have occurred just in mm -hmm. this past 12 months and mm -hmm. everything like that. So it's definitely been yeah, man. But I hear um, that, bro. in terms of everything that I've been doing, like towards enlightenment, yeah, like I just honestly, the thing that I'm loving about doing all of this is that it's so me. It just, you know, what I mean, even having this conversation with you, like obviously there's a formal setup, there's a microphone, there's cameras and all that sort of stuff. But what I love about it is every conversation I go into, I just feel I can maintain that feeling of like, I'm just seeing you like, I caught you outside to say Camilla or something like that and we catch you up and you had time and I had time and we just ended up having a conversation, right? And like all the things I've talked about have been my interest and whatnot. And these are the conversations I've shared with a lot of my close friends. Yeah. But it just came to a point now where it's like, it's so easy at this point to expand this and be able to bring these conversations out to the world, either for me or you to look back on, or it's just for other people who haven't even seen this side or heard these conversations or it's not necessarily the type of conversations they're having around them at the time right yeah so. yeah 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 i completely agree and listen man like you being you being a educated black man there is a, almost like a responsibility that you have to be able to show people yo this is the face of what our people look like you know because yeah. a lot of people in the world have this misconception you know and it's about towards black people towards right now a huge issues towards east asian people with covid19 it's been that way for Muslims for the past 20 years with 9-11. And like, it, it's the, it's the, I don't know, man. I don't know if you feel it, but I'm kind of speaking on your behalf. But I definitely feel that as someone that has gotten a chance to have an education that has done a lot of soul searching and, 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 and looking for that enlightenment, I feel like if I ever have a voice or a platform or an opportunity, I want to use that to bring other people to the light. You know what I'm saying? So I'm sure you feel the same way, given the fact that, you know, you are you are putting this these great things out there. Like I read a lot of your blog posts and I felt deeply connected to what you were talking about, bro. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. And circling back to your first point about like the responsibility as an educated black guy, I feel that's like at the heart. Like that's a very seed of all this and the whole concept of the Durag scholar. And like that's a part of the reason why I'm coming on here at my Durag every time because it's like both for the side of my people like i want people to see that 
I am Jamal. You know, you might know me from another context. You might know the the basketball Jamal or the listening to rap Jamal, the loud at the party dancing and whining type of that Jamal. But there's also an educated side that a lot of times, even for me when I was younger, I never saw myself and the other black people I saw. I couldn't connect to them. I'm like, they're not listening to rap music. They're it felt like they're not a part of the culture, and because of that, it felt like I could never be in their footsteps. Like, yeah, That's they right. might be black as well. I might be another black guy, but. You know mm. what I mean? It's There's no connection there. So I wanted Absolutely. to show that that connection can exist despite, you know, I'm now going the corporate route and working all these corporate jobs and I'm doing my blog, I'm doing my podcast and all this other stuff. I'm still me. I'm still black, right? And then on the other side, like showing other people who may not have the experiences of seeing this side of black people, right? Because the media is going to give one portrayal, you know what I mean? And even certain celebrities are going to give another dimension and, for a lot of people, that's that's their limited perceptions. Like so many people I met coming to university, like they haven't really experienced being around black people before mm. that point. And it was mm. kind of shocking even realizing how many of those people exist within Canada. Who's like, yeah, they like there might have been two black people in their high school, and like that was their limited experience with them. So mm-hmm. I agree. To be able to come here and be a different face and give a different dimension. It's like I'm trying to pull both sides together because that's really what it all comes to be about pulling mm-hmm. everybody together and also being like amazed with life and amazed with the opportunities of life and yeah seeing i was a terrible student in high school you know what i mean and now i'm excelling in university i'm going in a whole complete different path you know what i mean like mm-hmm. you can reconcile the two parts to be whatever mm-hmm. you want to be type thing yeah, I agree. And I really like what you said about going to university and then people saying, wow, like it's my first time actually having a you know relationship or a, a conversation with a black person because they didn't have any around them or didn't ever met a Muslim around them because they grew up in these small towns in like Northern Ontario and they just never came across anybody from different ethnicity, right? And I don't blame them, bro. If you grew up in like Halliburton, Ontario, like I understand. And, exactly. and, and yeah, and it just it is what it is, right? But we've come to and and maybe this is for the better that there's so much information now online and there's so many resources that even if you do come from that background, I guess there really is no excuse to be uninformed. And at the same time, like the people that are coming from places like Mississauga um, doesn't always mean that it frees them of being. Um, fully inclusionary either there's a lot of people that are growing up around lots of different people but they're just as racist and bigoted and as white supremacists you know seriously right so it doesn't really matter where you come from i think it really matters about the character of your individual person so the the funny thing is that within the muslim community i i I speak for myself here 100 percent. that's what you're here for i i feel that it's funny jamal that within the muslim community I've experienced more hate and I've experienced more people talking bad about me from people that are supposed to be my brothers in faith than people who don't share the same faith as me. Like, it's a crazy thing, right? There's people who don't believe in the same faith as me that have more love and respect for what I do than the people who are supposed to be right next to me in prayer you know what i'm saying and they're like oh we can't be next to you in prayer because you got tattoos like it it really blows my mind so it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from i think there is this core value of understanding one another and of justice and equity that 
exists irrespective of religion, irrespective of ethnicity or socioeconomic background. You know, if you're good, you you re- you real recognizes real regardless yeah. of who or when yeah. they are. That's it. Yeah, yeah, that's a fact. And I definitely want to take a deep dive, like onto your experience, because that's always one thing. Like I jumped into your Instagram live, I seen that whole situation where someone had gone yeah. out of their way, make an Instagram account. I can't remember the name of it, but it was essentially along the lines yeah. of pray for while your health, like 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 you're lost type of thing, or whatever the yeah. case may be. And First of all, one thing I want to give you your flowers on is I was always impressed by how outspoken you were by your faith and outspoken about you're you've always been very proud in your devotion and in your religion and in your faith and everything like that. Right. And a lot of times, especially nowadays, that's not necessarily the cool thing to do. And that's something I've always shared, too, that, you know, I may not follow the strict conventions of Christianity or anything like that, but I'm. I'm a firm believer. I'm deeply rooted in my faith and I'll never be ridiculed out of that. You know what I mean? And I'll never, I'll never shy away from it. So it was cool to see you be so outspoken by that. And then mm-hmm. on the flip side of the coin, um, what was a little disappointing is to see somebody who is so outspoken and brave about their faith and so devoted to their faith get ridiculed by people within their faith, especially at a time when there's so much outside forces that have the Islamophobic like perceptions and all this other stuff. And it's like, yeah. man, this guy, you know what I mean? <laughs> you're, you're, you're carrying the torch with it. You're like, you're allowing all your Muslim people to be like, you know what I mean? If they're in a certain crowd to be like, yeah, like I am Muslim. Like, this is my thing. Yeah. I'm going to pray five times. Yeah. I'm gonna leave the ball court alone. I'm gonna hit my prayer real quick and come back. And then it's like, wait, people have something to say to you. So like, I want to know like your experiences on that, like how you feel about how you approach about how you approach it and everything like that. Man, <laughs> this guy, five minutes in, it's like, Shit into it, shit into it, man. You know, there, there's, ah, uh, man, this, this is going to be a really good conversation. And that's why I was so excited to do this with you because I, I appreciate that you do that. Um, and there's no, there's no, there's no shying away from these conversations. I feel like if you really want to get to know someone, you ask these questions. And to be quite honest with you, man, my relationship with Islam, my relationship with faith has been so on and off. And, and I feel like that's, that's everybody with their faith. No one is ever just consistently like, okay, I'm on my faith all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. And I got to before I can really get into it, I think I got to give some backstory as well, because I wasn't always a devoted Muslim. In fact, there was times in my life where I wouldn't even consider myself Muslim at all. Mm -hmm. And when you grow up in a home where religion is taught to you without questioning, it becomes institutionalized and ritualized. So you'll Mm -hmm. pray not knowing why you're praying, but only because your parents are telling you to do so. So you'll recite the Lord's Prayer. You'll pray five times a day. You'll go to mosque or church or to temple, but not because you want to, but because your parents are telling you to. Yeah. And there's no compulsion in faith. No matter how much you force anyone to do anything, until they actually want to do it, it has no meaning. You might tell kids, yo, don't party, don't have sex before marriage don't do drugs, but until they fully feel compelled themselves, 
the second that their parents are not there and they go to university in first year and live on dorm on their own, they're doing all of that stuff. Everyone does. But when you have a deep understanding of your faith and why you believe what you believe and you questioned it and you come to your own understanding and conclusions, I mean, that changes everything. And I used to ask myself a lot of questions. I used to ask, yo, why is it that I believe in God and that God is all good and all great, but yet there's people that are dying and my own people are getting bombs dropped on them. Yep. How does a good God allow that to happen to good people that are innocent? How come I walk down here, Ontario on Dundas and I see homeless people by the fresh go right across my building, but God's supposed to be all good and care for all his beings, right? And I think everybody at some point asks these questions Some people just aren't vocal about them because they're scared what their parents are going to say, or they're scared what their religious leaders are going to say, or they're scared to be outcasted by the community for questioning what they believe. But how can you have firm understanding if you don't ask those questions? Yup. Yup. It's just, it's just not, it's, it's, it's part of the process of being human, you know? And I think the, the point in my life where I felt like it, it, it came to me was when I saw my grandma die. She was my last uh, remaining grandparent. I never met either of my grandfathers and my my grandma from my mom's side passed away when I was really young. So my my grandmother from my, my, my father's side was the only remaining grandparent that I had a working relationship with. And so when she passed, I remember looking into her casket and my dad was standing right next to me. And it was probably the second time in my life that I ever see my dad cry because he doesn't show a lot of emotions. And mm-hmm. I remember looking at my grandma and the casket thinking there will be a time in my life where I'll be standing where my father is standing and my father will be in that casket. And there will be a time when my son is standing where I would be standing and I will be in that casket. What's going on? What am I doing? Mm -hmm. Have I answered the questions that I had for myself in this life? And that's when I really started searching. And for a long time, Man, I was going to church, I was going to temple, I was going to mosque, I was, I was reading the Bible, bro. I was doing I was doing like consistent Bible study. I would wake up and do Bible study in the morning. You know, I, I learned, I learned so much about so many different faiths. And I actually I ended up studying religion as a minor because I got so interested in asking these questions after my grandma died. I think it was it was one of the first times that I, I had seen death so close to me, right? Mm-hmm. And death really changes you, especially when it's someone that you that you knew for a long time and that was a family member. Yeah. And so one of the classes that I ended up taking at university that really gave me a lot of enlightenment and that that pushed me in the path of path of searching was a philosophy class. And I remember going to philosophy class at U of T. And the first question that the professor asked was, raise your hand if you believe in God. Imagine, bro, that's the first question the <laughs> professor asked. That's a, that's a dope way to start a class. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so like half the students raise their hand and then he says, raise your hand if you don't believe there's a God. And then the other half raised their hand and we had a discussion and debate about whether or not God exists. Mm-hmm. And after the debate, he started teaching and he said, you know, one of the most compelling theories that exists and for the existence of God is something called intelligent design theory. Do you know much about intelligent design theory? Have you read about it before? I've heard about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think I understand the overall gist, but I'd love for you to dive into it still. Yeah. So intelligent design theory is very, very interesting. But the premise of this theory is that things in our universe are so meticulously organized 
that it could not be coincidence. So when you think about, for example, the temperature that the earth needs to have, the temperature range that the earth needs to have for there to be inhabitable human life, it is very precise. When you think about the distance between the sun and the earth and what distance would be you know, the best distance for human life to be able to go forward. Like this has all been so meticulously organized. And if it was changed by even a fraction of a degree, it would not be inhabitable from humans. So mm -hmm. it's just, it's a crazy thing to think that everything has been designed a certain way by sheer coincidence. It's more plausible to think that there's someone who's designed it. Yeah. And that's where I was like, okay, this is sick. I think I believe that, you know, <laughs> and that's, yeah, when, yeah. that's when I was like, okay, I think there is a God because I don't think this could surely be coincidence. When I think about how vast the world is, the universe, the, the solar systems, even down to like the individual human body and human anatomy. I was going right? to say the anatomy, like it's so precisely designed. There's so many things where your body's designed to take care of itself, even against any sort of fluctuations or anything like that, right? And it's mm -hmm. like, how could this just be or by random chance? Exactly. Like, do you know how vaccines work, Jamal? You get exposed to the virus, a low amount of the virus that creates antibodies and trains your body to, to fight the virus. Something like exactly. that that is essential to every human body, which is it, crazy. It's insanity, like the complication of that actual process. And it's just a, a given right to almost everybody that's born, every being ever. Isn't that crazy to think about? Yeah. That to that to be vaccinated, you're actually putting the virus in your body and your body is doing the work that's fighting it and creating a defense system. Like that is wild. It's wild. Insane. Right? It's like you got to be able to understand this from so many different perspectives. It cannot be simply it's it's not simply okay here's what it means to be a christian go do this here's what it means to be a muslim go do this it's not that easy and the other thing too is when i started reading a lot about different religions i saw how much they all overlapped and how much they're yeah. all connected christianity and islam are basically the same religion same yeah. but people do not understand that so when muslims say allah it's the same thing as when christians say the father it's the same God. They're speaking to the same God. In fact, there are Arab Christians who live in Muslim majority countries that say Allah when they speak about the Father. Yep. And Jesus Christ is a holy prophet in the Quran. He's the most quoted prophet in the Quran. You can't have Islam without talking about Jesus Christ, right? And people don't understand that. You know, they, they think that there must be some vast differences between these religions because they might be ignorant. They don't know enough about it. But when you actually learn about it, you think, wow, this, there's so much common ground here. And it, it, it amazes me because some of the stories that give me so much faith, when I think about the story of Joseph and the well, when I think about the story of Solomon and his, and his, and his powers, when I think about the story of David and Goliath and the Goliath. stone and how David conquered with one stone, these are all stories that are in the Quran that are taught to Muslims that are that are also taught to the young Christian kids right 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 down the hallway, you know. So it's like we gotta see the common ground in what we believe. I think that's that's the first thing, and that's what I slowly started to understand. And what pushed me 
to Islam ultimately was something that happened to my mom that was a really traumatic experience. I'm not sure if you have seen this um, TED talk that I did, but um, I did a TED talk on Islamophobia. But long story short, my mom was attacked by someone on the street, right by right by five and 10, about four years yeah. ago. Yeah, so someone actually pulled up in a, in a pickup and threw garbage and coffee on my mom. Yeah, and this happened in Saga. Like, you, you know, it's crazy. How many people in Saga that come from such diverse backgrounds, how many Muslims are, are in Saga? It's nuts. And so, um, I mean, imagine your mom coming home, walking through the door and you seeing that, right? How infuriated you would be. And I was angry. And it's it's a natural response to be like, man, who did this to my mom? I'm trying to figure out who did this and, you know, go settle it, right? Yeah. But um, But that's what they want people to do. That's what they want the marginalized to do. They want a reason to say, look at those people. See, that's what they're all about, right? That's how Muslims respond. That's how the black community responds. That's what we expect yeah. from these people, right? Yeah. And that's when I realized I can't be doing that. I got to respond with creativity. I got to put this fuel and fire into something that's going to be longer lasting than simply just punching someone in the face or, you know, talking shit about someone or, you know, throwing garbage on someone and getting an eye for an eye. That's like a simple, yeah. quick, easy fix. Yep, exactly. You it know, just, it, it takes it, no yeah. creativity, no thought, anything like that. That's it. And instead of doing anything like that, instead of seeking out how this happened or, or, or who had done it, I said, I'm going to take this experience and create something powerful out of it. And I wrote, a, I wrote a spoken word. And um, I put that spoken word on, this was back when Facebook videos were popping. It got like 200,000 views on Facebook videos. Wow. And, and, some, and some person that was organizing a TEDx talk actually watched it and reached out and said, we, we need you to do this per performance and talk about Islamophobia because we're not talking about this right now. And so who would have thought, man, that that happening to my mom, this awful experience, this, this incredibly you know, disgusting thing would actually transform into a wonderful opportunity for me to talk about Islamophobia. And then as a result, I was also forced to learn more specifically about Islam. And when I started learning more about Islam, as a result, I was like, yo, I actually really resonate with a lot that's being said here. I understand it now. I came back to my faith. And even then, even now, it's still been an up and down journey. And there's days where it's good and there's days where it's bad. But you know, I, I feel like with anything, it is a constant work in progress. LeBron James is the greatest player, but he still continues to work hard and grind. And that's why yeah. he's had such longevity. And so yeah. no matter how devoted I may seem on social media or whatever, I still have a very long way to go. And mm -hmm. this is just the beginning of a path for me, but I wanted to just put some context in there before we continue in the conversation. So people know where I'm coming from when, you know, they, they hear about how I came to my, my faith or, you know, what exactly happened to me that brought me to my faith and got me closer to it. Yeah, I love all of that. And that's insanity. I didn't hear about that situation with your mom. And it's sad because, you know, obviously us coming from the same area and everything like that, it's five and 10, just hearing the words, like it's a very vivid image to me for, you know, so much of my childhood, so much of my teen years were lived right there. And to imagine that something like that would happen, it it's crazy. And we're even talking about, you know, being exposed to people of different cultures and whatnot. It's not a guarantee of anything at all. You know what I mean? People who may be exposed to the most Muslims and most black people may carry with them the most hatred. The most Asian people may carry the most hatred, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important for all of us, you know, especially coming from marginalized groups to 
carry our light strong and to have an approach of creativity and how we address those things. Because the same thing, like, I used to have a lot of anger, you know? Like, I'd get mistreated. Like, my instinct when I was young, right? I'd walk into a store, and I'm instantly just getting followed and profiled and all this sort of stuff. Like, it used to bring anger. And, like, my approach in those situations was, like, how can I let my anger be directed at you that you feel intimidated to even do this again, you know? Whether that's staring back and grilling you and asking you, like, what's, you know what I mean? Stuff like that, but it's, like, if anything, that leaves a more lasting impression and justification of their hatred when you give people those negative experiences. Mm -hmm. But as marginalized people, when you take on everything that's happening and you find a more creative approach to yeah. how can, just by living my life, how can I shine the light on how beautiful whatever aspect of your personality or your upbringing or your culture, whatever it be, how can I let other people see that light? I think that's one, I mean, it's not the only thing, but that's one huge effort we can all do as individuals to really drive forth that hate and drive, get rid of um, the justifications for that hate. You know what I mean? Um, another thing that I love that you touched on, because this resonates so much with me, like, <laughs> I was a kid, I was definitely getting in trouble at church when I was young, because from very, very young, um, I was willing to question. And... It was definitely included as almost part of the religious package to not question because not questioning was a sign of not having faith. And I love how you talk about the necessity of questioning because that's how I feel about it now as I, I've walked my journey is that without questioning, I almost feel like your faith is questionable itself. You know what I mean? Like yeah. If you've never been at a point of challenge then how do you really know what you believe in? How do you really know where your loyalties lie, where your beliefs lie, or anything like that, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's definitely important as part of your journey to question. It's important for people, especially when you have kids, because it's normally the parents on setting religion onto the kids, um, to give them that space of questioning. You know, there's a respectful way of going about it. You know, there's definitely a way of questioning that can, you know, really step on other people's toes. But it's really part of the journey to having the strongest amount of faith possible for whatever it is, right? You have to educate yourself. You have to come to believe it for yourself. Otherwise, it's just a matter of rituals. At that point, it's just a transmission of culture, and it's nothing more than that. Exactly. But when somebody actually questions it and has the experiences that make them actually step back and reflect, when people have that period of amazement, like I related it to that too because I had so many points as a kid where – I would learn things, whether it's the anatomy or physics or space or whatever the case may be, where it's just like, I'm in awe. Completely going on a side tangent. Um, I remember coming across something in about 2015, and I might be chopping up all the details. I'm obviously not a physicist, but um, one scientist, a black scientist at that, which was really cool, uncovered. I don't really know exactly what this means, but I guess they had developed some sort of four-dimensional model or something like that of quantum physics. And as they created that and had some sort of mapping of it or whatever, essentially they found um, code that resembled the code that we have for like internet browsers and everything like that. And they're finding that within the mapping of quantum physics. And that definitely spoke to the justification of thinking like there seems to be some sort of design to this. And that's hard to justify the coincidence of that when you take the, the binary zeros and ones of quantum physics, which from the scientific perspective of the most 
justifiable explanation of how our universe came into being to find that it resembles the meticulous coding that goes into creating browsers and all this sort of stuff is it's insanity it's insanity yeah. right and it definitely yeah. brings to light a lot of questions like how could this happen by chance at that point the probability of it happening by chance are so slim. to me seems lower than the probability of it happening by design exactly yes yeah yes. and the way i've approached things where i've come into my spirituality is i've come to accept maybe the strict conventional perceptions of what or who god is maybe that's where our error may be right but the way i conceptualize things whoever created all of this to me is when i say god i'm thinking of that person and i have my own ideas that could yeah. be misled about who god is and what that means to be god and all that sort of stuff but it's really hard to convince me that things just randomly happen by chance and happen yeah. at the level of precision that there's so many patterns within nature even i don't know if you know about um the normal distribution i think there's so many things that follow the normal distribution like people's like ratios of like their hand size and this that the other you know there's a crazy guy on tiktok who's doing all these insane calculations on people's height by measuring proportions and all this sort of stuff and it's like how could that be a random pattern that seems like somebody had a formula to i'm now going to create this and these are the ratios i'm going to use right yeah so it all that stuff is amazing i think it's powerful you know whether you end up becoming religious or not um mm -hmm. it's an amazing period to go through that questioning and wondering that existential questioning of how this all comes to be has been at the root of so much of my wonder with this world like Good. it allows me to go outside with a, a deeper level of appreciation you know mm -hmm. that just goes out through my whole life like the way i interact with people just off the strength of that amazement is now different i feel so much more love my heart so much more full and whatnot and so obviously i'm not pushing my views on anybody everybody has their own path and that's what i'm saying it's important to walk your own path and whatnot that's a question and so i love how you brought all of that stuff up um kind of circling back though um talking about you know being part of the muslim community and 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 feeling some of that lack of acceptance from the outside community um how how do you stay grounded in your faith despite all of that and how what's your perceptions of those people and how to best move forward you know like not only just for yourself to be okay moving forward but how do you feel is the best way to discuss and obviously i went in instagram live and whatnot but if you were to give a summary of what's the best way of interacting with those people and trying to change their approach if at all possible so lo lots lots to say there um i'll give you the short and long i'll give you the short first and then the long version after but um one i think that there are some people that will never change no matter what you do and no matter how much you advise them and guide them and give them resources some people are just never going to change right yeah. So you every so someone could know smoking is bad and they could tell you smoking is bad don't smoke cigarettes you got to stop but no matter how much your parents tell you or your friends tell you ultimately it's your own decision you know it's wrong but you still keep doing it that's on you and there's sometimes yeah. people that you just can't change and this it's until they learn their lesson the hard way they won't change and i've come to accept that that i cannot force my opinions and i can only tell someone so much until they need to make that decision for themselves so mm -hmm. that's the first thing um the second thing is and this requires a little more context and it's going to be a little longer mm -hmm. 
But if you look back at any time that you were either a bully or have been bullied, and as kids, I think everyone at some point has been bullied or was a bully. Mm -hmm. If you think back to those experiences, whether you were the victim or the bully in either situation, it's often hurt that has perpetuated that to happen. Mm-hmm. Someone that has an abusive father who doesn't know how to cope with it will go to school and then start abusing other kids. Yeah. Someone who has never had the love of a mother will never know how to love their girlfriend, will never know how to yeah. love their wife, yeah. will have a really hard time exp- explaining how they feel and their emotions because they haven't had that care of a mother in their life, right? Someone who's never had a lot of money and someone that's never had a lot of privilege or opportunity, the second you give them a little bit of it, they're like all over it. They don't know what to do with it. It's like everything for them. You know, the lack of something is often the reason we do certain things, you know? So a lot of people that don't have much, they're frugal. A lot of people that have so much, they're, they're careless with their spending. Now, obviously there's a generalizations, but typically these things hold true. And yeah. so oftentimes one of the generalization, one of the generalizations that I will make that I do believe to be true is that hurt people hurt people. Yeah. Hurt people hurt people, man. The yeah. people that have been bullied themselves, they're the ones that end up bullying others who don't know how to deal with it. Like yeah. it's 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 very cliche, but you ever think about those sociopaths and movies and why they end up that way? It's because they had some like abnormal, abnormal child abuse as a kid. Maybe they were sexually abused or you know, they had some sort of trauma that they never resolved. Like this mm-hmm. is why hurt happens. And so when the Muslim community or individuals from the Muslim community like to pick on me and say certain things about me without actually getting to know me, oftentimes it is because they have been hurt by others within the community and they are projecting their own insecurities on others because they don't know how to reconcile them. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So you yourself are doing X, Y, Z, lying to people, slandering people, you know, committing adultery, whatever have it that you feel guilty about. So you you feel the need to go and point out other people's flaws because you can't come to terms with your own. Yeah. That's the and that's and that's true irrespective of what faith group it is, whether it's Muslims or Hindus or Christians or whatever. It's mm-hmm. it's the same same situation, same same scrutiny exists. And when I see people, and, and and oftentimes a good way to look at people for who they are is to see who they keep around themselves. Who are they influenced by? Mm-hmm. You know, one people, like a certain group of people that I really can't take seriously are the people that are like televangelists that will preach about God and giving to their neighbor, but they're like sitting on a Bentley and they've never donated to their own congregation, but they ask their congregation to you know, donate to them. Yeah. And they buy a private jet with it. And they got these like huge mega churches and mega mosques and the Saudi money that's, you know, yeah, I could go on forever, man. It's crazy. In Saudi Arabia, they have so much money. They have one of the greatest oil exports in the world, yet their neighbors in Yemen are being starved by them. There's a famine in Yemen. People can't eat and people in Saudi are chilling on gold. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. And so... Oftentimes, the people that are so quick to judge others instead of looking inward and correcting themselves are the ones that have the biggest flaws in their own faith. And I've come to realize that the hard way, you know, Mm -hmm. and sometimes you can change them. Sometimes you can advise them. And sometimes you can. You just work on yourself. I think the best advice that I could ever give to anybody is, you know, give them give them a second chance, but never a third. Like fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. It's shame on me. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think. You live and you learn. 
these people sometimes are they're young they don't know any better but i really feel like one it's made me a better muslim it's reminded me that their judgment they can judge all they want but their judgment doesn't matter only allah's judgment matters and and at the end of the day like these challenges make me stronger it's kind of like a diamond like there's signs in nature for people who are really reflective and when you think about a diamond the way a diamond is formed is through immense heat and immense pressure right it's deep in the earth for millions of years and even when it's excavated from the earth that diamond needs to be refined otherwise it's just an ordinary rock yeah but because of the pressure because of the heat yeah just walk right past it but because of the heat because of the pressure because of the refinement that it goes through this meticulous and and very very powerful and and expensive process it becomes that valuable diamond so if a diamond needs heat and pressure to that degree, what makes you think that you're going to have any value without going through the challenges of your own? Mm-hmm. And so I've realized that these challenges and these moments of tribulation and the people that hate on me, they are all part of my growth. I need to learn how to adapt myself to the, the, you know, the people that'll come in and they'll, they'll want to bring me down. And this is, I think as you succeed, as you find the path, as you find God, as you continue to grow, this is inevitable. And that's part of my growth. Yeah, yeah. I love how you spoke on that because that's so important because even within the Jamaican Christian community, you know, that was definitely the norm that I saw coming up. And I love to distinguish, like, I always, when I'm talking to my friends, there's religion itself, and then there's almost like the culture of religion. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times when we find the judgment, because I've had so many friends completely walk away from faith because of the judgment that they receive from people within their own community. Like for me coming up at a certain point, like you'd be talked right out the building for showing up to church in jeans. And I used to question, I used to be a kid and literally a line in the Bible that we always talk about all the time is Jesus says, come as you are. We always talk about how, you know, Jesus got ridiculed for associating with a prostitute. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But that's his, you know what I mean? And then on the very flip end, we're saying, Y'all coming to the church, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. you're not going to drive people out the church for simply what they're wearing or they have an earring in their ear and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, it's crazy, but that's where it becomes important to separate. You know, I love how you talked about the perspective of individuals, their own pains and stuff that they're carrying. But even more than that, there's a, there's a, um, there's a system, and that system is human-made. I don't believe that it's God-made, Islam-made, Christian-made, or anything like that, but... There's a culture. The culture is we all coming up. You have to dress your best for church Facts. and all this other stuff. That's culture. Jamal. That's Christianity. You know what I mean? Yo, like 7, that's not Christianity. Men supposed to speak facts, bro. <laughs> <laughs> you feel what I'm saying, man? I'm telling you. I'm telling you. So it's 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 sad because it's such um it's so counterproductive. It's so counterproductive because you want to bring people into faith. Like faith itself is an inclusionary practice. Mm-hmm. I know that's true for Islam. I know that's tr- true for Christianity. I know that. And I mm-hmm. also am confident to assume that for other religions that I'm not yeah. as well versed in and everything like that. Um, and so many times we're driving people away that want to believe, want to have that faith and whatnot. Um, but it's important to separate the culture from religion. That's why you just got to yeah. walk your own path. You got to yeah. walk your own path for real. Yo, you know what that reminded me of? I really want to share this story. Do you know much about Malcolm X and his journey? 
Yeah, yeah, I do, but still touch on it, man. Touch yo, it. Malcolm X has such a yo, this guy was a G. G and like, a half. Yeah. Yeah. Like first first and foremost, for if you don't for anyone that's watching this that doesn't know Malcolm X, please do your due diligence and research this man's journey because it was a very powerful journey. But succinctly, as you know, Malcolm grew up as an orphan. His, his parents were killed by white supremacists in the KKK, and he grew up alone and grew up with tremendous difficulty. And, you know, was, was caught up in the struggle of just hustling to get by. And he went to jail. And then in jail, he came across people that were from the Nation of Islam, which was uh, predominant, all black, actually, only black yeah. um, Muslim yeah. group in America, right? And they were making a lot of waves at that time. And yeah. so uh, Malcolm became Muslim in prison. He started learning more about Islam. And then uh, because he, God gave him a gift of speaking, he was able to really quickly distinguish himself from other people that were within that nation of Islam community. And so Elijah Muhammad, who, who was the uh, the main sort of head guy running the show, saw Malcolm's talent and said, "You gotta, you gotta be a speaker on our behalf. You gotta present. You gotta, you gotta, you, you gotta give sermons. You gotta be a, mm -hmm. a preacher for our faith." And so, you know, Malcolm quickly said, "Yes, I'd love to do it." But at the time, um, you know, and we and and I can't speak to the black experience, but there was so much trauma and hate towards the black community at that time that you know, at some point where it's like, imagine you just, you keep hurting someone, you keep hurting someone, someone they're going to snap at one point. Yeah. And, and that was, and that was the point, you know, at the pinnacle of segregation and, and all of this where the black community was like, all right, we're snapping on these guys. We've had yeah. enough of it. Right. And Malcolm was so fearless in the way that he spoke that he attracted hundreds and thousands of people with what he was saying. His messages were so powerful and especially a lot of black community, a lot of people from the black community that felt super, super disenfranchised, right? Because they had experienced such, such hate and such trauma. And one of the most powerful things that I've ever seen in my life was Malcolm before he went to the city of Mecca and after he came back, he yeah. had such a moment. It's like, it's incredible how much one experience can change you and just how much love there is in faith, regardless of what faith it is. Malcolm was talking just before he left about how we need almost like a black supremacy movement to counter white supremacy. Like you gotta go head to head. There was almost like a like an aggression at that point because there was yeah. so much hate, right? Yeah. Which like is understandable when you when you put yourself in those shoes, even though I could never do that, I understand it. And then he went to Mecca for the, for the pilgrimage called Hajj. Like every Muslim, if they have the financial means in their life, they are encouraged to go to Mecca and pray at the mosque in Mecca. And mm -hmm. so he went to Mecca and he went to pray. And he's praying with white-skinned Muslims in Mecca. And he's taken aback because all the Muslims that he's ever known have been dark-skinned. So he goes to Mecca and he sees Muslims that look like Khabib that have white skin and he's like what is going on here like i'm praying next to this guy who's my brother in faith but when i go back to america i hate the white man yeah and he goes back to america and he says i can't hate the white man no matter how much hurt i've experienced by the white people in my life i can't mm -hmm. hate them mm -hmm. my religion does not teach this hate mm -hmm. even though i feel it i cannot i cannot promote this hate anymore and the saddest thing is when he started speaking the truth and he said that the nation of Islam killed him, his own people killed him because he spoke the truth, man. Mm -hmm. 
and it's it it makes me emotional it makes me it makes me sad bro because anytime you have people that just speak their truth like this they get silenced and they often get silenced from within their own community the reason jesus christ was prosecuted was because of one of his own disciples disciples yeah story of judas man it hits deep it hits deep it hits so deep. I, I digress but you know what it's it's the world that we live in mm-hmm. and if it happened two thousand years ago with jesus christ and it happened a hundred almost 80 something years ago with malcolm x it's going to continue happening to me and you and we just got to be prepared for it exactly exactly and know how to shoulder through it i love it i love it yeah I want to bring things to a more lighter direction because there's so much, so much, honestly, like, while I was telling you, brother, I could talk to you for 15 hours with ease, like, honestly, with ease. So I definitely hope this to be the first segment of many. For sure. Um, but one thing I want to talk about, first, I'll give a little, a little bit of a rundown because I remember your early days. Obviously, now you're a very established poet and going doing your things with spoken word and different conferences stuff that even doing your ted talk and whatnot um but i remember um being a witness to one of your very early stages when yeah. you're at cawthorn and whatnot and i remember yeah. so i went to port credit secondary and whatnot and i knew i knew you before through like basketball and everything like that and some other guys that had known you but i remember you came in you had delivered one of your speeches at port credit i believe yeah i believe or did we go to cawthorn no i think you had come to I think you had to come to Port Credit and you had talked about your story. And one thing that I love to it, like, I remember just quietly relating to it a lot because one of the distinct things I remember the most was you coming from a very, very different circumstances that led you through some trouble and whatnot and to be going through that and having your mom even witness to all of those things and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And then to fast forward and you're now in this situation where a neighboring high school is having you deliver your story and your experiences and everything like that um, to the students that are there was like amazing. And I felt like I was in the, the stages of 180 in my own life. You know what I mean? Cause mm-hmm. coming from a whole different lifestyle, whole different attitude, all these sorts of things. Right. And I feel like I'm, I'm later on that journey now, but I believe it's, it's beautiful, but I want to know, what specifically led you towards poetry and spoken word? Like, how did this specifically come to be your art form? I remember yeah. you were rapping before and everything like that. Yeah. Um, but I'd love for you to talk on your experience with your teacher. I don't remember her name. Yeah. And then you being in the direction that you're on now. Yeah, that's a great question, man. Dog, I remember those days like yesterday, freestyling in the hallways. <laughs> I remember coming to Port Credit Secondary and it was in the cafeteria and AR, AR Paisley way back in the yeah. day was freestyling and he passed me the mic and I was freestyling <laughs> after like, it was crazy, man. I love yeah. those moments and I love those days and, and yeah. rap was a huge part of my life and still is a huge part of my life. And, you know, you're so right, man. When I got arrested and, and my mom was witness to that and I was going through this phase of trying to figure out who I was and being in this rebellious young kid phase, which I, I think a lot of young men go through when they try to deal with masculinity and being a man. Um, you know, rap music was kind of like my escape at that time. So writing lyrics, listening to a beat, freestyling, it was like almost a way out for me. But the distinction for poetry came 
when I got a little bit older. So I had a I had a track that did really well called King of the Castle, which was in Mississauga, and it got uh, got a good, pretty pretty decent amount of viewership on YouTube. And I was I was really feeling myself. I was like, okay, maybe I'll be a rapper. But then I started thinking, I'm like, the more I go down this path, I feel like the more I'll have to conform to the status quo of being a rapper to have more success. Otherwise, I become put into either a very, very small niche of like conscious hip hop. Yeah. And, and I do well in a very small niche or I got to conform if I want that bigger audience and that bigger stage, right? Yeah. And that's when I was like, why do I want to chase something that's so super niche and something that's just not me entirely? And so I said, let's do something different. And spoken word wasn't really a big thing a few years ago. It's just yeah. recently become a big thing with, yeah. I don't know if you know who Amanda Gorman is, who performed at President Biden's inauguration. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I so remember I seen from you posting about it, actually. Yeah, yeah. And she's power to her, bro. She's a young black woman holding her own. And that's a really good thing to see. And so um, spoken word was never really a big thing. But the reason that I really gravitated towards it was because everybody could understand it. It wasn't super niche, like conscious hip hop, where you really had to be a hip hop head to like vibe with people. For example, like Immortal Technique, you ask the oh average God. person, right, who is like <laughs> so ill, like how could yeah. you not vibe with Immortal Technique, yeah, right? should be mainstream, but yeah. Yeah, but if you ask anyone in the high school right now who Immortal Technique is, not many people are going to know who he is, right? Yeah. Whereas if you ask them who NBA Youngboy is, or if you ask them who Drake is, of course, everybody knows that. Yeah. So it's like, I got to make a choice, man. Am I, am I trying to be like Immortal Technique? Am I trying to be like these, these bigger guys? And I just figured that's yeah. not me. And that's yeah. not me either. Yeah. spoken word was like this happy medium everybody could understand it there was no beat in the background that was taken away from my voice i felt like i could go and do spoken word at a corporate audience i can go and do spoken word at the high school i can go and do spoken word at a poetry slam at a club you could yeah. do it anywhere and people will yeah. still vibe with it and the message was exactly what i wanted to share so it mm -hmm. seemed like it was just perfectly up my alley it was the mix between being casual but also being able to sneak it into a professional environment which yeah. is what I needed. Yeah. It was a really good happy medium. And at the same time, like Rupi Carr from Brampton is like blowing up and she's like insta famous for her poetry. And I said, yo, why not me? Why can't I be a Muslim South Asian immigrant voice for spoken word? That is a pretty good niche that I can basically plug into anywhere. Because if I go to, if you were a high school principal and I say, hey, good to meet you, uh, you know, Jamal, I'd love to come to your kids and and do a performance. And you're like, okay, what do you do? And I say, yo, I'm a rapper and here's my mixtape. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. you If you're a high school principal, you're like, all right, there's the door, yo. Like, you know what I mean? Seriously, I'm not taking your mixtape, man. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And, yeah. and and it's it's the sad, the sad reality, right? Yeah. Whereas, I knew that with this avenue, I could make a massive difference, man. And that's why yeah. I was very intentional about choosing to be uh, focusing on spoken word. I love that. I love that. And you have been able to be immensely impactful with it. Like I've been watching, I've been watching your journey pretty much from the jump. And it's, it's been amazing seeing you at this point. This is on a little side. Now I'm going to carry back on, but I just want to talk about how much I love being at this age now because it just feels like I'm surrounded by so many of my people, so many of my friends who are going out and are empowered to accomplish so many amazing things. And it's just amazing because 
I remember a time life did not feel like that both a little bit because of age but a lot about how the world kind of was at that time you know what I mean especially for minorities like we didn't have the same empowerment to be able to go deliver our craft and be impactful and everything like that. And so to see you, I remember you had been doing your thing at Celebration Square. You had things going on like with We Day and everything. And that's one of the most, it's got to be one of the most notable notable events within your life. Honestly, yeah. being able to be a part of We Day and be delivered to such a well well-established, on a well-established platform to such a large crowd and everything like that. And of course, things I wanted to talk to you too about. I remember seeing your freestyling with Kendrick Lamar, which was amazing, absolutely amazing. And I believe, was it with, when you had opened up for Barack Obama, was that through that, We Day as well? No, 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 that was a completely separate event, but that was one of the best moments of my life, man. Has to be, has to yeah. be, has to be. So touch, I would love for you to touch on that. Like, so what was that whole situation with Barack Obama and how did you get into that position? Yeah, so I've actually never shared this story before, so I'm really glad that we were talking about this. Awesome. Meeting meeting Barack Obama was, man, I don't even know how to explain it, bro. <laughs> meeting Obama was probably the biggest honor of my life, to say the least. And you know, when I when I was at the event to go meet him, there was like two separate rooms you had to be in. So one was like a pre-screening room. There was a line to go into like a another segment of a room that was like completely blocked off so you actually didn't even see him until you were like like right next to him right yeah. it was completely blocked off and there's armed guards like at every entrance every. right <laughs> it is high high security for sure man they had like bomb dogs bomb dogs in the um in the entire floor just making sure everyone was like not trying to do no funny business so I was in this line and I'm thinking to myself, like I'm about to meet Barack Obama. I'm about to actually have a conversation with one of the most important human beings of my time. Like, what do I ask this guy? <laughs> right? What do you, what do you ask Obama? Right? And so there's like one person ahead of me and I'm like, okay, I gotta, gotta think of something. I'm like, you know, I'm gonna ask him what inspired him the most in his journey to keep committed to what he was doing. And so it's my turn to meet him. I'm super nervous. I'm shaking like crazy. I got the shivers. I extend my hand. I said, President Obama, my name is Wally Shaw. Nice to meet you. How you doing today? I said, oh, Wally, nice to meet you. How are you, brother? I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I just, you know, I just feel so honored. And I wanted to ask you, what was your biggest inspiration throughout your journey and everything that you were able to accomplish? And he just sort of laughed and he said, uh, to be honest with you, Wally, I have to give it to Michelle. <laughs> I just sort of <laughs> laughed to myself. <laughs> and he started talking about this whole concept of, you know, the person that you're with and, and, and the relationship that you choose for yourself, that the person you choose to marry is everything because they're through you through thick and thin. They're with you through thick and thin. Mm -hmm. And you've got to pick the right partner for yourself. And ultimately, you got to pick the right people to be in your corner. And it was good advice. And it was something that I'm going to hold on to forever. And so I invited him over for dinner. I said, listen, um, Mr. Obama, we'd, we'd love to have you over for dinner at my house. We'll make some like South Asian inspired cuisine for you. And he laughed and he said, listen, Wally, I'd love to come over for dinner, but you better have a really big dining table because I'm going to have to bring 12 members of the Secret Service with me. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you got to have a lot of seats for sure. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, that was a cool moment. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And honestly, I love the fact that the first place he went to, like when you talked about what inspired you, the first place he went to was one, his partner in crime, but then two, his immediate circle around him. And 
Mm-hmm. That's something that, you know, I remember like talking to the OGs and everything like that. That's something that, you know, gets stressed a lot by people older. And I feel I felt like I understood them when I was younger, but you still kind of take their advice for granted. You still underestimate the importance of their experience in, yeah. in preaching how important, you know, both picking, you know, the right girlfriend, the right wife, you know, the right partner. Um, and then also picking the right friends and having the right support system around you. And so for one of the most influential, one of the most powerful people that has been on this earth since we've been alive, you know what I mean? And arguably, even historically speaking, ever, you know, Mm -hmm. for the first place for his mind to go to when he asked that question really underscores its importance, man. Seriously, Mm -hmm. that's huge. And so how did you get, so like, what exactly was that situation to talk to Obama? Because I had thought it was part of another year of um, We Day or something like that. No, it was actually a completely different event. So Barack Obama was coming to Toronto to do a keynote presentation and Mm -hmm. and just deliver a a talk. And so um, the event managers were looking for someone to do some spoken word to close out the wow. event after he was done. And that's when they got in touch and they said, well, we, you know, we think it would be a great fit to have Wally do like a spoken word to end it off. And, and this, this goes back to the rap conversation too, because there were so many performers that day, like Jesse Reyes and a couple other singers and stuff from Toronto, which was great, but there was no spoken word. And mm-hmm. I think the reason I've been able to be successful in my craft and to have opportunities like that one is because I'm in an industry where there really isn't a lot of competition. Whereas if I was trying to really push as a rapper right now, you got to compete with everybody down the street because everybody wants to be a rapper. Everybody's looking for clout, right? And so this has been a journey where I've learned a lot. I've gotten a chance to do things I never imagined. Mm -hmm. And, And it's just beginning to be quite honest with you, man. I'm 26 years old and I feel like I've just started. You know, COVID was almost like a reset button for me where in March, I lost everything. I lost all my bookings. I had no opportunities. And no, now one full year later, there's been so much opportunity virtually. I can't even keep up with everything. You know, like I, I got, I got lots of stuff that I'm working on. I just finished the poem for women's day, which was a really powerful poem. You know, I just finished a poem for Nelson education, which went out to like all the teachers in Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so this this is God's plan, bro. What can I say? But, um, but man, I really want to talk about ball. We haven't talked about ball yet. And so I saw that <laughs> yeah. as one of the interview questions and I was like, we got to talk about ball, bro. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So one thing I, I, I want to jump into straight away. So obviously I, I feel like I shouldn't even have to give any context to this. If you know me, okay. You know, basketball, although I've walked away from it a little bit, you know, school's kind of taking a priority. Even this podcast about basketball will forever be a part of me. Honestly, I learned to become a man or not, not even about becoming a man i've learned to become the best version of myself through basketball you know like my discipline came through basketball my work ethic everything came through basketball seeing the world with um a mindset of possibilities and everything like that came through basketball came through the inspiration i saw from basketball people like you know the late kobe Bryant, everything like that that's basketball is me i am one with basketball to go ahead and make that statement um, but one thing that was really cool, I remember, so you had gone to UFT in Mississauga, um, and I remember you had made an Instagram post and you were talking about, I think it was, I don't know if it was after the fact, I think it was after the fact, or maybe it was like right before you, your desire, because of your love for basketball and coming up with basketball and everything like that, um, to try out for the team, I think it was in your last, your final year, yeah. right, and 
that was amazing to me because even at that time you were making waves like with your career and everything that you were doing and whatnot and then to see you make that bold move to be like okay this is something that i still love let me still expend some effort and dedication to trying to make a dream of mine happen and that's something that's really like one of the biggest takeaways i always want people when they're listening to these podcasts and stuff like that is to have that perspective if you have an interest in something whatever the case may be no matter what your exposure level is at that point your skill level is at that point whatever your opportunities are at that point carve out a way to make that happen you know give life a chance to be good to you give the universe a chance to be good to you um but yeah what i want you to speak on it directly like what drove that moment where you decided because i think at that point you had done four years of university that's intimidating to be in your last year especially if you wasn't playing ball at that level all the time to say you know what let me make this happen like what was your thought process going into this? yeah man so bro i remember when i was like 12 years old and i first shot a basketball and i was like so brick man i was like i'm never gonna make it <laughs> <laughs> I'm never gonna make any team ever, bro. Yo, I'm glad there was no you know, cameras on to, in those days, man. I think I back to bro when I shot with like two hands. It was <laughs> like that, eh? Yo, bro, I came such a long way, man, and I'm yeah. still, I'm still trash, bro. I put on some weight for the last year in COVID, not going to the gym. But yeah. basketball will always be life, man. I, I, I love yeah. the game of basketball and. When I was in high school at Kothra, you know, I I would, I would try for the team every year, but I never made it. And yeah. I always felt like this super discouraged, like I never made the team. I tried out every year. And my last year, I was supposed to make the team. And, and I remember, oh, bro, it broke my heart. I talked to Coach um, Swindle, who, who coaches at Kothra at that time. Yeah. And I said, Coach, like I, I did everything. Like I know I can play. I know I deserve to be on this team. And he looked at me and he was straight up. He said, Wally, but have you looked at your attendance record? Do you think you deserve yeah. to be on this team? You know? And it just hit me. It's like, man, even though at that point I knew I, sh I deserved to be on that team. And even the coach said, yeah, you, this was your year. Like mm -hmm. word for word, I'll never forget his word. He said, Wally, this was your year. Mm -hmm. You know? And it's just like, man, it hit me so hard that I let my attendance and my, my punctuality and my act, academics be the reason I didn't get to accomplish it. And so when I got to university, that was always in the back of my mind. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I wasn't the greatest like student in high school either, very much like yourself. It came to me more when I was in university. And, um, and I tried out for the team in the first couple of years, but the competition was incredibly high, right? And me yeah. being like a first year, second year student, I didn't stand a chance against these guys that were throwing down dunks. And they were, you know, they were like 22, I'm like 18. And it just, it, it made me feel like there's no point trying. Like yeah. the year that I could have played, I threw it away because of my academics. And now the competition at this level is too high for me to ever play at. So mm -hmm. that was a very discouraging kind of reality that I had to accept. But in my last year, I was just like, you know what? I saw, I saw the tryout poster. And it was literally like the same day and it was just percolating in my head. I'm like, yo, do I just strap on my kicks and just go? I haven't played in like months too. Like, I haven't yeah. played in a long time. I was like, yo, do I just go? Do I just like, it's my last time to give it a shot, whatever. So I was yeah. like, all right, whatever. I'm just going to go. And I go and I show up like five minutes late to the tryout too. Like it was a bad look. And I was like, whatever, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm just going to see what happens, you know? So yeah. I started just chucking up shots, but yo, I'm making every single <laughs> shot. 
Like, yeah, yo, Jamal. Too. <laughs> you know what happened? That one day, bro, I swear, like, the eight years of playing ball that I've breaked consistently, that one day was just like my one day I was on fire after eight yeah. years of breaking myself, bro. So, I... Bro, I was making everything that tryout, and the coach came up to me after. He's like, you got to come back for the second cut. I really wanted to see you here again. Mm -hmm. um, and I had this big smile on my face. I was like, yo, this is sick. I'm vibing. I'm feeling myself. Mm -hmm. Second tryout comes, and I didn't play as well, but I still played, I played pretty decent. And it was the last five minutes, and we just finished scrimmage, and he put everyone, he lined everyone up against the wall in the gym. And he said, if I call your name, I want you to cross and walk to the other side. And I'm like standing close to the middle. And so he starts walking on the line. You, you, two guys walk over. You, you, two guys walk over. And then he comes to me and he's looking at me and he's thinking, he's looking at his like little clipboard. And he's like, walk over. I start walking over and I'm like, man, is this a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know what's going on. And he calls a couple other guys, the ones that are really good, to walk over. And I'm like, okay, I think I just made the team. Yeah. And he's like, everyone that made it on the side, congratulations to made the basketball team. And I was like, wow, I cannot believe it. Like, I just, I, I was standing there and I was like shook. I was like, I actually made a basketball team. Yeah. And it's such a little thing. Like, it, well, people, I feel like when people will go back and, and, ask me questions in the future. It'll be about Kendrick Lamar. It'll be about Barack Obama. It'll be about We Day. But to be honest, that was like one of the most cherished memories of my life. Mm -hmm. Even though in, in comparison, I guess it might seem like a little thing, but for me, it was like everything. Because yeah. I just wanted the experience of, of playing on a team and putting on a jersey for my school, you yeah. know? And I still got my jersey from UTM in my room and I, and I had a great year that year. And, you know, I remember getting absolutely dusted in a tournament against some guys from like Seneca and this guy crossed me and I fell down and like a hundred people started laughing. Oh, yo, it was sad, bro. I was, I was like, okay, I'm going on the bench for the rest of the year, bro. <laughs> but, At least but you, you know did what? it in I the jersey, to... man. You got to do it in a jersey. <laughs> yeah, you know, I get to say I did it and I made it and I had a good time and at the end of the day, no one can yeah. take anything from me from that, you know? Yeah. And I'll always look back and, and think those were one of my, some of my happiest moments, man. Yeah. That's beautiful. I'm glad that you did. I'm glad that you had that experience that you still cherish so strongly. And like, that's something that a lot of people underestimate, you know, like those things that we take as little and whatever, or the things we, the opportunities we blow over and it's like, man, this is the same day. I didn't prepare for this. I didn't do this for this or anything like that. Like, a lot of times, those are the opportunities to go amaze yourself. Like, seriously, like, all those times that people are, like, someone gives you some sort of opportunity and you're just unprepared for it and you're like, you know what, I, I don't think I'm fit for it. You have no idea to what extent. Even if you didn't make the team, you never know how that experience could have translated for you to look back on in your memory some years later, right? Like, we don't really have a sense of what's on the other side for us. And then in your case, you did make the team. You got the opportunity to be a part of that and to be a part of a team at a university level. It's an amazing thing. And, like, that's kind of how I perceive things all the time for myself, like, as I'm approaching stuff. It's just give the universe a chance to be to be amazing, to impress you, you know? Give give the universe yeah. a chance to give you a memory that you're going to look back onto when everyone's talking about the accomplishments that you think 
that they think you would cherish the most where you can have those secret little undercover ones is like no actually this is one of the most amazing ones you know what i mean yeah. so that's awesome man that's Thanks, awesome man. and this is definitely one of those moments for me and mm. it's it's an interesting thing because being on a team teaches you a lot about life it teaches yeah. you about checking your ego it teaches you about jealousy seeing other players get more playing time it teaches mm -hmm. you about understanding that you got to sacrifice the ball and that you can't shoot every shot and you got to give it up to other players that it all teaches you a lot about um patience you know when you're down 20 and you're getting slapped you know what do you do mm -hmm. you know do you just tap out or do you keep you fighting you know you know fighting yeah 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 right mm -hmm. and so i mean these these were a lot of intangible lessons that you can apply to literally everything in life and they come from something as fun as basketball. And I and I hope that more people, if they do play sports for the athletes that are listening, like take those lessons away and apply them to your life because they are so directly applicable to everything. Um, you know, I think that one year, not even like, I guess eight months of that, that school year taught me more about life being on that team than the five years of me actually going there and studying and learning about theory. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? So mm -hmm. I do think that's a very important thing to, to remember for people. And, you know, I know you're a big basketball guy yourself. Like, are you, are you hoping to try out for the team in the future? Like, what's, what's basketball saying for yeah. you, man? Yeah, I was going to touch that story. So, so what's funny is, like, I kind of have, although I was a late bloomer to basketball, right? Like, I only really started playing competitive in grade nine. I kind of had the opposite story, right? Like, I had always made teams I tried out for, you know what I mean? Even at Port Credit, like, Started team grade nine. That's my first year of playing competitive, competitive basketball. I'm quickly in the heavy rotation. I loved going out, guys. I remember Tenzin. Shout out to Tenzin, man. I remember Tenzin, Tenzin had that. You remember Tenzin, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, Tenzin had that. He had that killer mentality. And I remember in the trout, he's just trying to go at everybody and give them buckets. And he's big, deezed Asian guy coming at you hard in the paint on every drive and everything like that. And a lot of guys were intimidated and whatnot. And I just remember refusing to be intimidated i remember one play i'll never talk about those little moments that are little right of all my basketball memories one of my most cherished ones is being new i didn't know anybody at port credit like i had moved this that the other i didn't know anyone this that the other i'm in the trial and i remember it was one drill where you have to go pretty much you have to hold one-on-one -on -one defense and then you're going to go play three on two after I remember tense is coming at me full speed and everything like that it makes a hard spin tries to go up with a layup and I just stuffed it back in his face. So <laughs> stuffed it back in his face <laughs> so hard. He took that one to heart. Being the competitor that he is, he really took that one to heart. Cause it's like, yeah. you know, who is this guy? I'm this like skinny, I was so skinny those days. This skinny little lanky guy, this, that, the other, like who is this guy with this long unshaped Afro and everything like that or whatever. Mm. Um, but yeah, anyway, so, you know, captain of my teams, both at high school, rep, everything like that, competing, winning tournaments and everything. And so for me, my story with basketball is interesting. So after my grade 12 year, or towards the end of my grade 12 year, I started making money. I was working part-time jobs. I had even gotten a job at the airport before I even graduated high school and whatnot. And I just, for the first time, like I didn't make money. I was always so broke and so poor, you know, coming up. And then it was like, this was my first opportunity to make money. I honestly moved away from my love for basketball and completely left the sport alone and just was chasing money, making money and everything like that. When I had come to Laurier for my first year, just a few months before, about two, three months before, um, I remember I was working at Toyota at that time out in Cambridge and they had the basketball corner or whatever. And I was like, you know what? Like I rediscovered my love for basketball. I was like, I can't leave this. You know what I mean? I can never leave this. 
So I was doing two a days. I'd train before working, do a ten hour, ten and a half hour shift at the plant, go back to the court after training and everything like that. And I tried out for the team at Laurier. And on a little side note, I always remember I told myself. So this is first year, first week. Everyone's trying to party, go crazy. I held it down. Trials were the the sec the first Monday, right? Yeah. So pretty much a weekend too so you have like five days everyone's partying meeting each other and then it's the monday after that the tryouts are told myself i'm not partying i'm not partying i'm not partying i'm not going now i don't want to get sick i just want to be locked in and whatever i've been training for this right thursday friday hits or something like that i remember my boy christian finally got me out to a party this that the other and just as expected right before the trial i think it was like sunday night i'm spinning out loogies i'm sick i'm coughing i'm sneezing whatever but i'm still gonna go to the trial whatever I think I, I think I played overall pretty well, but I definitely, especially cardio and all that, it wasn't there. And that was the first time I'd ever heard no in basketball. That was the first time I ever showed up to something, you know, whether it's trying out making a team or trying to get a starting position or anything. That's the first time that I heard no. And one thing that I look back on, I wouldn't necessarily say I have a regret, um, but I always look at it very interesting because so much of my story with basketball was perseverance and dedication, being a late bloomer, not being a natural talent, and turning everything around to 180. And it was like the first time I really came across a serious obstacle, I let that no just, I heard no, and I was like, okay, well, time to move on and do other stuff, you know? And I took school serious, and I did a lot of amazing things. I impressed myself. That was the first time I was like, okay, I'm actually a student now. You know what I mean? Before, it was always like, I have basketball first, number one. Two is probably my friends. There's probably three, four, five other things before school came into play. I never took school serious. That was the first time I took university serious, made a lot of things happen, started getting good marks, getting co-op jobs and everything like that. But it was always a point of interest for somebody who was so dedicated to the sport and still has so much love for it. Why did I let one no stop me? Mm. And so at this point, I mean, it's hard. I'm in my last semester, my last month now. I definitely, the way I feel and feeling, setting out to accomplish what I accomplished with school, I would definitely love to have that same experience as you and have that final year go to the trout. Because I know if I bust my ass for it, like I'm I'm going to be on the other side of the court. You know what I mean? I'm going to yes. be on the other side of the court. So, I mean, that shit might have sailed, but I can't wait for this summer to return for me to just go hard with basketball and training and getting back to that level I was in seeing if I can even surpass that because for mm -hmm. me, it wasn't just um, the clout that came with it. And it wasn't even just about even playing the game itself. It was like, you're talking about an escape. That really was mm -hmm. an escape for me. And like, that really Absolutely. was like my life teacher, you know, even everything I've done with school, like everyone knows I'm always making analogies for things. Like if you have a conversation with me, I'm constantly making analogies for things. And, the way I've gone about my life in a lot of ways and a lot of things I've accomplished has always been going back to the lessons I've learned with basketball, going back to my experiences of, you know, in a grade seven tryout, I walked myself out of the tryout. I completely walked. I felt like I wasn't doing well. I was such a tough critic. I'm like, man, I can't do this. I'm not as good as everyone else. I walked Did myself out of the tryout. Did you go to Camilla? No, I went to Homelands. Okay, okay. I went Homelands. to Homelands. It's, by, it's a feeder school for Arendelle yeah. on the other side. But yeah, I walked myself out of the child and everything. And even the coach came and was like, after and talked to me, he's like, why did you walk out? Like, you're doing one of the best. You're definitely going to make the team or whatever. But I had to, at that time in my life, I let myself quit. I was a tough critic on myself and everything like that. 
And so through basketball, going back into things that later years and competing and seeing, I'm 180 and it became a it became a time round. I'm on the court. I don't care who their guard is. I'm picking you up full court, single press by myself type thing. You know what I mean? Like I'm ready to clamp down whoever, right? And so looking back on those experiences has always been a reference point for me to set out to accomplish whatever it is I want to do. So basketball, basketball is still close to my spirit, man. Not in my heart, my spirit, seriously. Yeah. Well, look, man, listen, I'm so, I'm so proud of you. And I think it's funny that you talk about that with basketball and now you are, you're writing this blog. You've got a great podcast that you're working on. You know, when certain paths close, other paths open up for you. And even though, you know, that would have been a great experience, I think what you've been able to do in, in me watching from a distance for the past year, your growth as a man and your growth being vulnerable online, sharing the things that you are, the trajectory that I see you like doing this, Jamal, is huge. Like there is such a need for young black person, like young black people like yourself, when they hear this podcast, when they're listening to you talk and share your experiences, they will resonate, they will see themselves represented in so many of these issues that they're dealing with. Like, mm -hmm. this is what the world needs. And basketball is just one way you can also then connect with those kids. You know, mm -hmm. when I talked to these, I had a great conversation with students from Stephen Lewis today. And I think this could be great stuff for you to do in the future. But consider doing workshops with these kids, man. Consider just having little life talks with them, you know? Like, I think there is such a need for that, especially from young racialized men that are very open about their masculinity, about their faith, about their relationships, about their struggles. Like, we need people that are open enough to doing this. And so even though one chapter closed, unfortunately, it's like I've seen what I believe personally to be a much bigger chapter for you open. And I'm excited to see what happens that. for you in the future, man. I genuinely am. I appreciate that, Wally, for real. I'm definitely taking out the heart. And definitely a lot of the stuff that you're doing, I definitely love it because I see it opening a lane up for myself. You know what I mean? To take yeah. my own experiences and my own story and do some similar stuff. And that's a lot of what this podcast is. So hearing that from you, my brother, I definitely appreciate that big time, big time. Yeah. And I'm also aware of the time. We got it right at a at a perfect point. I know you have to out <laughs> at seven. I definitely yeah. loved having you on this podcast. I appreciate your time so much. And honestly, this has to be the first of many more segments. There's still so much for us to touch on. But definitely. And I'd so love much. to love to run ball sometime in the summer when you're back, bro. When you got that degree in your hand, you know, we'll it's get gonna it. Be, <laughs> it's going to be different. That's going to be a scholar hooping on there. It's going to be Greg Popovich with good knees, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> yes, man. I cannot. I cannot wait for that, bro. I'm so excited for it. Yeah, Thank you so sure. much, Jamal. I appreciate you having me on, brother. Yeah, no worries. Keep doing everything you're doing, my brother. We'll definitely connect another time. Take care. All right, bro. Take care, man.